Freedom of conscience isn't mentioned in our Bill of Rights. Freedom of conscience isn't mentioned in the Constitution. Freedom of conscience isn't mentioned in the Declaration of Independence. Why? Because freedom of conscience is the basis upon which all these things stand. The reason for freedom of conscience is because we owe obligations to God which come prior to any possible obligation to civil society. The voice you just heard was that of Dr. William Barclay Allen. He is Dean Emeritus at James Madison College and Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. A lovely campus if you've never had the opportunity to visit. I was able to visit just a few weeks ago and it's uh, beautiful springtime over there right now with the buds starting to show on the trees. Dr. Allen is a brilliant thinker, a fantastic, uh, a fantastic man to listen to, and we will have a full interview with him coming up in just a few moments here on Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It's my pleasure and privilege to be your host here on the podcast. And uh, I also want to mention, before we get to the interview, Dr. Allen will be joining us this summer. As part of Acton University, we've got a great lineup of plenary speakers again this year. Dr. Allen will be with us on Thursday night at Acton University talking about the freedom of conscience. So we talk about that a little bit in our interview in just a moment as well. Uh, but Dr. Allen will be there. Magat Wade, uh, an entrepreneur, African entrepreneur, and uh, an amazing woman is going to be there to talk about her story and her experiences. On the first night, Dr. Vernon Smith, Nobel Prize winner, will be there as well uh, as another plenary speaker. And, uh, of course, uh, Father Robert Sirico, the president and co-founder of the Acton Institute, will close things out with the Friday night plenary as usual. And we are looking forward to Acton University again this year. It's uh, If you haven't been to Acton U, please do look into it. It's a great opportunity for people from all walks of life to learn about and learn how to rebuild and reinforce the foundations of a free and virtuous society. You can check it out online, university.acton.org. Go through the class schedule, see what's being offered this year, and uh, if you have the opportunity to come and join us at DeVos Place here in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan, this June 14 through 17, uh, I would I would not hesitate to invite you to uh, join us. It's going to be a fantastic year again. We always have a great conference, and we're looking forward to it once again for 2016. Well, uh, I think I've said enough. Let's uh, get to the good part of the podcast. I uh, was privileged to be able to talk with Dr. William Allen. And without further ado, let's get to my interview with him here on this edition of Radio Free Acton. Well, I am very pleased to be joined today on Radio Free Acton by a, a gentleman who I've wanted to have on this podcast for quite a while now. Uh, he is a scholar and uh, a fine gentleman. Uh, he is William Allen. Dr. William Allen is uh, uh, Emeritus Dean at James Madison College at M uh, Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan, also Emeritus Professor of Political Science. And uh, most intriguing to me, something that I found out uh, the last time that you were here at the Acton Institute, Dr. Allen, is that you are uh, the associate pastor at the First Baptist Church now, and, uh, and let me make sure I'm getting the pronunciation right, the correct Maryland pronunciation, Havre de Grace. That's exactly right. On both counts. In in northeastern Maryland, uh, looks looks to be a, a community nestled on the beautiful shores of the Chesapeake Bay. But uh, tell me, d how did you come to become uh, a, an associate pastor at a church in in Maryland? 
Well, it was, I suppose, we might say, in the ordinary course of events. I, I, we always, of course, find a church whenever we establish a new home and a new community. And uh, this was a church God appointed for us. And our service in this church simply brought us to the point at which it was a natural thing for me to do, to take on more responsibility than might otherwise have seemed apparent. I have been preaching on behalf of the church for some time, particularly delivering services at local nursing home, a cap facility. And that weekly service has grown over time, as along with other responsibilities in the church. The church was in need of an associate pastor, and the church asked me to be so. Well, I, I think I think they made a good choice. I can uh, I, I I have to say I just find it a, a great thing to hear of, uh, of folks when they move and, and and they're offered an opportunity to to participate with a local church. It's great to to have people step up and do that. So, uh, kudos to you for that. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, Dr. Allen, I, obviously we're in the middle of a uh, presidential election cycle in the United States, and uh, you are a scholar of American history and American political history and philosophy. I, I guess I'm just going to open with the, the obvious question right here. What are your thoughts, just some general thoughts, on the current presidential election cycle? Do we have any sort of historical precedent for what's going on right now uh, with our presidential election? Well, we do have some historical background. Whether I would want to elevate it to the status of precedent, I will hesitate. But uh, certainly there are elements of the Jacksonian emergence. With this, this important difference, Jackson had at least established himself as a military hero uh, whose character was well known. And though there were populist and nationalist aspects of his approach to presidential politics that certainly brought forth what we might consider a democratic or popular outpouring, particularly by the time of 1828-1832, he was a known entity. Uh, we had, of course, the little-known Abraham Lincoln emerge in 1860. But after a long career of labor in which he made speeches, engaged in debates, had become recognized as someone who was concerned with the moral direction of the country and the character of the people. So, though little known, his efforts were not unknown. One could appraise who he was and where he stood. Uh, today, we're in a very different situation. Uh, we have a popular outpouring at one level. Some say it's only 30% of the Republican Party, which is therefore a very small part of the nation. Mm -hmm. But it's clear that there is in the nation broader than the constituency that is supporting the candidate Trump uh, some rumbling, some unsettled uh, status, some anxiety, some fear, and some desire to strike out. And all of it takes place in a context, it seems to me, in which we have to call into question just how firm the national character is. And when I say national character, I mean what George Washington meant by that when he said in 1783, we have a national character to establish. Uh, we, as a people, seem somewhat at sea as exactly what we stand for today. And so this presidential election is calling us to ask that question, what does America stand for and what is an American? Yes, and you, you actually moved directly into a, into a point that I was about to make, or the, the next question that I was going to ask, which is uh, you, uh, of course, participated in our documentary, The Birth of Freedom, and, and one of the most memorable points in that documentary for me was when you spoke of George Washington 
and his uh, his encouragement and his his um, his uh, his imploring the American people uh, to maintain a national character, a decent national character. And, and you compared Washington with the the French revolutionaries who believed apparently that the government could create a national character. Washington, of course, said no. The people, a good people, will will give you good governance. Uh, what what does the rise of Trump and Sanders say about our character? Have we, have we slipped? And and how has this happened? When did, did, did can you pinpoint a a place in our history where some slippage started to occur? Well, let us say over the last generation or two, we have noticed changes taking place, and those changes are summarized in the emergence of what is called political correctness. Hmm. in which we are more concerned with attitudes and appearances than with substantial justice. In our tradition, and certainly this is what Washington meant, he reminded reminded us of it in his farewell address, that it was very important for people who were going to rule, who were going to be the sovereign, who were going to be the masters, rather than having the government the master, nothing was more important than that they first prove that they can govern themselves. And... In governing themselves, they had to commit to live by a consistent rule of justice. Now, we know this is an ideal expression. Not every single soul at every single moment in a nation's history is going to be animated by the love of justice. But the question is whether the weight of society leans in that direction, whether the arc of history, to borrow an expression from Martin Luther King, leans in that direction. And we can say, I think, with some certitude that generally the arc of history has been bent in the direction of justice, the affirmation of justice, the commitment to justice, and the acceptance of the responsibility for self-government. But in the past generation or two, we have seen a weakening of that. We've seen the emergence of victimhood as a prominent aspect of many segments of our population. We've seen the emergence of political correctness in which it's more important to identify with the right interest group than it is to support a standard of justice. Because, of course, a commitment to justice means that we stand on the side of what is right, whether it harms our friends or someone else's friends. We don't decide simply on the basis of identity and affiliation. Well, we have increasingly been turning to affiliation, identity politics, as the basis of decision-making. And that, to me, is a sure tip-off that our character as a people is being undermined, that we're not willing to make the sacrifices necessary to be free. A big part of uh, national character, as I, as I would understand it anyways, uh, or, or at least the... A big part of a nation that that has a national character worth having is the freedom of conscience. Um, a people who understand the importance of conscience and the importance of of those first principles in their daily lives and uh, by extension in their government. There are many people who are very concerned uh, these days, uh, especially over the past couple of years. I think is has been the most prominent uh, Supreme Court cases and such that have really put pressure on religious liberty in uh, in the United States. Uh, there are many who say that that freedom, that first freedom, is eroding. And the, there are many who are concerned that attacks on freedom of conscience are becoming all too common in our society. Uh, there are also those who say, "Oh, you're being paranoid. You know, this is the, you're, you're still free to worship as you like." Um, and and it's 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 sort of a paranoia to say that freedom of religion is eroding. 
Is there actual erosion of freedom of religion? Is that freedom under threat? Well, now you're stealing my thunder. (laughs) (laughs) Because, of course, it is not the freedom of religion, which is derivative, but the freedom of conscience, which you first identified as central to our founding. And it's important to understand freedom of conscience isn't mentioned in our Bill of Rights. Freedom of conscience isn't mentioned in the Constitution. Freedom of conscience isn't mentioned in the Declaration of Independence. Why? Because freedom of conscience is the basis upon which all these things stand. Hmm. James Madison elaborates this with great clarity in his memorial and remonstrance in 1785. And in explaining it, tells us that the reason for freedom of conscience is because we owe obligations to God which come prior to any possible obligation to civil society. And we know that the freedom of conscience, not the freedom of religion, the freedom of conscience, religion, that's practice, that's worship, that's affiliation. Freedom of conscience is personal. This is a direct one-to-one relationship with God that's at stake in the freedom of conscience. The freedom of conscience is entailed upon mankind by command. All the other natural rights, all the other liberties, we can deduce by reason from natural law. And yes, we receive that natural law from God, but we can use independent reason to affirm the rights of men, human rights. All except for the freedom of conscience. Reason can never derive a freedom of conscience. It can only be derived where there is a God and at whose command conscience is possible in response to the offer of salvation. I don't want to become too academic about this, but I will point out that Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Contra Gentilis points out that man can reason his way all the way up to the existence of God, but he stops short because he can't reason his way to salvation. He must receive that by grace. But the grace that is offered is directly addressed to each and every human heart, each and every human soul. And the freedom of conscience that is necessary is the freedom to be able to receive that. And yes, having that freedom means that one can reject it. Mm -hmm. Even the atheist exercises freedom of conscience. But he only has it because God has offered it because God has commanded a response to the offer of salvation. This, this is the foundation of American civilization. People often, I'm going to go off on a digression, but it won't take long. Let me oh, feel free. People often debate the question, is the United States a Christian nation? And they think when they debate it that what they're arguing about is whether there are more Christians than non-Christians in the United States. That's not relevant. It's a Christian nation because it's founded on the freedom of conscience, which is a distinctly Christian principle. And no other nation is founded on the freedom of conscience. That's why it's relatively easy in France and Europe in general to write laws restricting what people can say in a way that national government in the United States cannot do, although there are often those who are inclined to attempt it. And so I now cycle back to saying political correctness is one of the first signs of what's been eroding our national character. 
Because what lies under, behind, beneath that political correctness is that European instinct to begin regulating expressions of conscience, to tell us what we can and cannot salute, what religious garb we can and cannot wear, what affirmations we can or cannot make in public space, or to compel the little sisters of the poor to give tacit approval to contraception in support of a health care law. All of these things begin to be intrusions upon, incursions upon the freedom of conscience. And the freedom of conscience requires a defense that doesn't appeal to the Declaration or the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. What it appeals to is the foundation of society, which is prior to all those things, and in the name of which those things can come to exist and have legitimacy, and without which they have no legitimacy, whatever. I am talking with uh, Dr. William Allen, uh, Emeritus Dean at the James Madison College, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Michigan State University. Uh, and he, you will, I, I should add, be speaking on this very topic uh, of the freedom of conscience at Acton University this summer in June. And we're very much looking forward to that. Based on, on what you just spoke of, Obviously, we, we have seen in, in the United States, uh, we, we are still, uh, speaking of the United States, a very religious nation, a very Christian nation uh, in the Western world. Compared to with, with uh, most of Western Europe and a lot of the rest of the world, America is, is very religious. But we have seen a decline in Christian practice and I think Christian understanding uh, in America. Uh, is it possible for liberty to survive without that Christian understanding, without that Christian backbone? It is impossible for liberty to survive without freedom of conscience. Liberty can survive without a large number of Christians, as long as there is freedom of conscience. (laughs) And Christians, therefore, can be Christian, however few they may be. But without that, it cannot survive. Not only can liberty not survive, but I'll tell you something that is not so intuitive which we don't have time to explore, but I certainly intend to explore when I'm at Acton University this summer. The free market can't survive without freedom of conscience. Uh. Now, that's not apparent to people. That's not intuitive. But I can tell you there is an argument which demonstrates that even the free market depends on freedom of conscience. So so there is a non-political foundation for liberal politics in the modern world. Because we want to know... How is the modern world different from the ancient world? It is for that reason, above all. Tocqueville had hints of this when he wrote Democracy in America. But no one has really seen it comprehensively and understood how powerfully we are shaped by the freedom of conscience in all of our political aspirations, let alone our religious hopes. My my hope is that what we're seeing right now in American politics is is sort of a uh, a temporary convulsion of things, uh, perhaps a delayed response to the financial crisis and, and, and a general disgust with the way that Washington has worked and, and the, the, the drift that we've seen from the principles that our, our government was founded on. Um, do, that that's obviously the hope and the and perhaps a best case scenario. Do you believe that there is going to be a move uh, among the people of America to 
in essence, reestablish uh, the constitutional governance that we that we were supposed to have as our birthright. Uh, it, it it feels that we've drifted from that. Do you think that the people have the the moral capacity to do that? To call to go back to that uh, that order that we once had. The people want statesmanly guidance, and I mean want in both senses of the word. You know, you asked earlier if there were a historical precedent to what we are experiencing. And in one sense, there are at least twice, perhaps three times, historical precedents. Back at the beginning of the Republic, the breakup of the Federalist Party and disappearance of the Federalist Party was a precedent to what seems to be possible, if not likely at the moment, and that's the breakup of the Republican Party. And then subsequently, the Whig Party, which ultimately evolved out of the breakup of the Federalist Party, broke up to be replaced by the Republican Party. In other words, American politics has experienced before the established existence of political parties and the falling apart of political parties. So the question is whether the falling apart of a political party represents the complete disintegration of any coherent public voice, public opinion in the United States. I believe that the people will remain available to, accessible to, statesmanly leadership, that you cannot expect the people spontaneously to generate out of their bowels, as it were, moral direction, but you can't expect them to respond to opportunities for moral choice. And so as intelligible moral choices are presented to them in a manner that makes clear that what is at stake is the very future of the society, I still will affirm the people's capacity to choose the right thing. I still affirm the capacity for self-government. That is reassuring, and I, I, I would add, too, that I think that uh, in your, uh, your current work as, uh, as a pastor, uh, you have uh, have chosen the the proper way to go about uh, reinforcing that moral core of the people uh, that that is going to be necessary in order to to restore America to what I, I suppose to 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 steal the phrase to make America great again. Yes, I, I certainly do believe that we do have to have recurrence to what was a long tradition in the United States, and that is being able to speak from our pulpits with authority about public questions. So that that has been weakened in some arenas for us, and we need to reestablish it. Dr. Allen, uh, Dr. William Allen, it has been a pleasure to talk with you. I know we could go on for a long time. There's so much to talk about, but uh, we can at least look forward to seeing you in June at Acton University. And uh, thank you once again for joining me on Radio Free Acton. It really has been a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, It's been my pleasure, Mr. Van der Maas. I look forward to seeing you in uh, June. And with that, we wrap up another edition of Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute. Uh, Once again, I want to thank Dr. William Allen uh, for joining us today on Radio Free Acton. It's always wonderful to uh, talk with Dr. Allen. It's even more wonderful to listen to Dr. Allen. And, uh, of course, Dr. Allen is going to be with us this summer uh, at Acton University, one of our plenary speakers. He's going to uh, expand greatly on his 
thoughts on the foundational nature of freedom of conscience. It's going to be a great lecture among many great lectures at Acton University. So I'd encourage you to check out AU online at university.acton.org. If you are able to join us, it will be a great opportunity to learn about and uh, help to build the foundations of free and virtuous society. University.acton.org is the web address. Uh, Spread that link around. And also, while you're spreading links around, uh, spread around the link to our Acton Institute Power Blog as well. Blog.acton.org. Lots of great content there every weekday. News information and commentary from an Acton perspective. And uh, we love to have folks come and read our stuff and engage with us in the comments. It's uh, it's just a very uh, lively blog, and we hope you'll make a point of checking that out every day as well. In the meantime, I want to thank you once again for joining us on Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It's my pleasure to be your host here on the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. And we will see you next time on future editions of Radio Free Acton. Have a good day, everybody. <laughs>